The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. All right, so uh, another edition of the very popular classic album clash here on Talk is Jericho. But for the first time ever, uh, we actually have some members of the band whose albums we are discussing involved in the show. Uh, And since we're doing Anthrax, Spreading the Disease versus Among the Living, uh, not only do we have esteemed radio DJ uh, extraordinaire uh, Eddie Trunk is here, but also Anthrax guitar player Scott Ian and Anthrax drummer Charlie Benanti are here as well. So this is a very uh, historical uh, episode of, of the Classic Album Clash, guys. Well, since you actually have the band members that wrote and recorded the record, since anything we have to say is the 100% correct, <laughs> it's not even opinion, it's fact. So really anything you or Eddie have to say about it doesn't matter regardless of whether or not we agree because By anything Charlie and I say is the actual fact of the matter. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I'd like to, there's an interesting twist on all of this, by the way, that I'd like to throw <laughs> out there because although, uh, Chris's introduction of me is certainly accurate as being a radio guy. There's more to you. it than that. Right. There's way, I have a way, way, way deeper connection to this particular era of anthrax because I worked for their record label and management at the time these records were made and uh, remember the creation of them. So I'm coming at this from two different perspectives, the label management side when the records were actually done. And because I'm old as dirt, I was doing radio back then, too, and I played these records. So I'm wearing two hats today in this conversation. Cool. Because you were working, we'll, we'll, we'll just jump right into it, Eddie. So you were working for Megaforce at the time when Anthrax was signed to Megaforce, correct? Well, I got there no. probably just after they were signed. They were not, they were, I got there around the time spreading disease was being done, but I knew about them because I would, just like Anthrax themselves, would go to Johnny's Flea Market and pester them to sign him, sign them. I went to Johnny's Flea Market and bought records that he would pester me to play on my metal show. And he gave me Fistful. And the first time I interviewed them was for Fistful. And then I remember vividly the EP coming. Because I was like, okay, yeah, I was like kind of like whatever with Fistful. But when, when the EP was done, because Johnny knew I liked melodic hard rock as well as metal. And he was like, 
when you hear this, we got this new guy singing. I'll never forget. He's like, it's like, it's like a, the guy from Journey singing over thrash metal. You're going to love it. And that's when I got the EP and was totally into it. And then shortly afterwards, he actually hired me to work for his company. Cool. If I remember correctly, was it was it me and Neil Turbin? Who did, it was the two of us that came to WDHA? Yeah, I actually still have that record because you guys signed the album cover to me somewhere. And I still have half fistful it's funny because like with you guys like i remember like when i think of like how long i've known you on so many different levels i kind of always remember seeing you guys around new york even before i really knew you because we went to so many of the same shows that we were all just you know kiss fanatics tom brown the connection there like all these things like like it was just like anthrax was just always there and then one day all of a sudden they made this ep that i really liked and then I got hired by Johnny because I was the first one to play Metallica for him. And then when I came in, Anthrax was doing Spreading, Overkill was doing Taking Over, Testament got signed a little bit after. So I was there during all that stuff and uh, great memories. And of course, then the other kind of outlying six degrees of separation that I talked to you guys via text is that Johnny, Zazula, and Megaforce were also the guys who signed Fozzy. In 1999, right. So, so the the guy that signed Metallica and Anthrax and Raven also signed Fozzy. So it's a uh, quite the uh, and we I've got some I, great Johnny Zazula stories to tell you as well. Once we get into that aspect of it, I was fired by then, so I was not a part of that. <laughs> yes, that's when uh, that's when Mits, Missy Colazzo took over, and she might still run the label. But you guys, Anthrax is not on Mega Force anymore because I know you were within the last decade. No, again. we are. You are now. They are. We are in for uh, North America. Yeah, we've been with Missy for for years for worship music and uh, for all kings and the next record. Yeah, it's funny how it all goes in one big circle, right? Yep. So Charlie, let me ask you this because I've forgotten that Fistful of Metal was also a megaforce, but it's interesting because when you talk about that time frame, if we want to go with the big four, the 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 debut records, Fistful of Metal from Anthrax, obviously Kill 'Em All, Metallica. Killing is my business, Megadeth, and Show No Mercy from Slayer were very much. Uh, they're still great records, but there's there's such a jump between record one and record two. Did you feel that when you guys were sitting down to write the the, the tunes for Spreading Disease? Because there's such a, a maturity and a, 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 a not improvement, but there's such an advancement in the, in the songwriting for sure. Well, I mean, we um, we didn't do much touring for the Fistful of Metal record. I mean, we went across country. Scott, right? That yeah. was one time. Uh, yeah, we did. We did like a month with with Raven, basically in the summer of '84. And uh, I think the last show we played was at Roseland, and that was mm-hmm. with uh, Metallica and Raven. And um, I think that show right there was a moment that we just changed. We knew exactly what we were going to do after that, and uh, man, we were just so determined. And then. Once we fired Neil, you know, things started to happen. And Scott took over more of the, the, as a lyricist, I took over more as the, you know, the writer of the music. And then we just started this connection. And when you wrote about, hey, I want to get together and do this, one thing popped into my head. I remember sitting in a hotel room in, I think it was Connecticut, and it was Scott, myself, and Johnny Z, and... Those guys, and I think the rest of the guys in the band, too, were around us, and they were writing the lyrics for Medusa. Do you remember that? Yeah, was it in 
wasn't that on Long Island. We were in that hotel where we were at that weird rehearsal place where we were like sleeping in the basement and I, whatever. Ronkonkoma. Ronkonkoma. Yeah, but I, I thought, <laughs> but I thought Johnny came out. Remember we did like a two week tour. Yeah, that's uh, right. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we were supporting the uh, the EP. And um, right. So we had all these songs and we, we had no lyrics really. And Johnny helped out with the song Medusa. That's right. I got publishing on that song. I remember. And, I remember looking because because <laughs> I love Medusa, and that's a whole story in and of itself. But I remember looking at that because I'm a freak where I look at every credit and thank you and all that to this day on every record. But I remember seeing that and seeing Johnny listed as a songwriter, and I'm like, well, since when did he start writing songs? And I mentioned <laughs> to him once. He's like, by the way, I wrote the lyrics. Yes, true story. Yeah, I uh, think you know, I think I remember. I mean, to Charlie's point, between fistful and spreading, you know, like you said, after Neil was out, and of course Danny Wilker had already been out since the beginning of 1984. So really, the 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 whole songwriting up to that point, you know, everything had been written. All the words had been written by Neil. Danny Wilker did the bulk of the music writing. I also did some music writing, but now you got Neil and Danny are gone. And well, who's going to fill those roles? Well, Charlie naturally <laughs> stepped into the role of writing riffs, and I just thought I could write lyrics mainly because no one told me I couldn't. But I figured I can do this. You know, I, I can write lyrics, and I think one of the reasons why I didn't write on Medusa because I'm pretty sure I don't think I contributed to that song at all was because. If you look at all the rest of the lyrics on that record and even going forward a little bit, it, everything was much more real life based in a more of a, let's say, hardcore or punk rock mentality of just writing about myself or the real world or things like that. Whereas Medusa was like a, a fantasy type of, you know, typical type of heavy metal lyric, which I didn't want to have anything to do with. And don't get me wrong. I loved lyrics like that from all the bands uh, that I grew up with, but that's not how I saw myself as writing. So when they came up with this idea to write about Medusa from, you know, the Greek mythology, I was like, have at it. I don't want anything to do with that. <laughs> and, you know, a funny, uh, a funny thing, because we were in a, a rehearsal place in Mount Vernon, New York, a place called Trilogy. And we would just hunker down into this room for like, it just seemed like a few months. And the original original way medusa was brought in was i originally thought of it like an iron maiden killers it was faster and then that completely got thrown out and it just got more like a, a slow groove type of song and and uh, i'm so glad it happened that way you know for years for decades i tormented scott to put medusa in the live show and he would give me the stink eye mm -hmm. every time i brought it up and then one time, I forget what the show was, not that long ago, you were screwing around and you started playing the riff because I was standing on the side of the stage and the the audience went crazy. I think, I don't know if you remember this, Scott, it was like Irving Plaza or something. And you were like, just with me and you played a little of the riff and the audience and I was pointing to the crowd and was, see, they love it. They want to hear it too. And then you guys started putting in the set. But for years, you guys used to give me, give me grief for asking about that song. Yeah, yeah. It was one of those songs, I think we just, we played it to death in the 80s, and and then, uh, you know, it just, it was one of those songs that took us, I think, a long time to, you know, want to date that song again. Scott, you guys <laughs> you guys played that the time when we uh, sold out Kufstein. 
<laughs> oh my god! You remember that? Yeah. You remember that? <laughs> yeah, that little. It was like How a little. I forget? A little wee like high school classroom, and I remember we were standing outside, and and Scott said to me, "Well, we've both been touring the world for years. But we finally made it. We sold out Kufstein." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But let's talk about, you mentioned uh, uh, having a lineup change because the classic Anthrax lineup of, of the two you guys, of course, and, and Dan Spitz at the time and Frankie and, uh, and, and Joey debuted on Spreading the Disease. So you basically had two new members in the band and more specifically a new lead singer, which is a huge deal. And what you mentioned earlier about having kind of a, a journey type vocal over top of thrash metal is what made you guys stand out from the rest of the thrash metal pack. Is that something that you that you were looking for on purpose, or did you just run into Joey and realized it was a different vibe? Oh, we wanted a singer. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. You know, if even you go you go back to Fistful and even you know pre Fistful, like proto Anthrax days, we always had a singer. You know, I think from the earliest time, Danny Looker and I even we saw ourselves much more in the Judas Priest. Gotcha. And Iron Maiden vein with a singer rather. And as much as we loved Motorhead and then, you know, even later, you know, stuff like Venom and more extreme stuff. I think our our vision of ourselves as a band was always with a, a singer, not a yeller or a shouter. And I, I love Metallica. I love a million bands that don't have singers, per se, like a Bruce or a Rob mm-hmm. or a Ronnie. But um, that's what worked for Anthrax. And where did you find Joey to, to bring him in the band? Wow. Actually, Carl Kennedy, who is the drummer for the Rods, he produced the first album and uh, spreading mm-hmm. with us. And he found Joey. I got to jump in, though, real quick on this, because, Chris, you talked about the quote unquote classic lineup debuting on spreading. But I think what's really important to note is it really didn't. It debuted before that with the Armed and Dangerous right, EP, EP, yeah. which was yeah. really very important for me as a fan because that was what set up spreading for me to be excited about the change in the band and Joey coming into it. Yeah, but right. it, that is true. I mean, it, that is the debut of it, but from a songwriting perspective, the EP still had, because Armed and Dangerous was a song we were doing with Deal in the band. Hmm. True. Um Raise Hell and, uh, was on that. Yeah, Raise Hell was on that, which was also with Neil and uh, what had the God Save the Queen cover, right? So, I mean, yeah, it, technically it is the debut, but from really from a songwriting perspective, the new the new Anthrax, you know, with Joey, really uh, for me, uh, certainly it definitely kicks in on on spreading. Right, but what I'm talking about is just from a fan perspective, like. First of all, I didn't know that you guys ever did, and I don't remember ever seeing you having done the song "Armed and Dangerous." Dangerous with Neil Turbin singing. I had no oh, idea. Oh yeah, we that. we did it on that oh, whole yeah. tour with Raven. Really? Uh huh. Oh, yeah. But for me, going back to what you guys just said, like I'm all about singers, and even though I now like some stuff that wouldn't be traditional singing, this whole movement of metal, what I didn't like about it at that time was I heard nobody really singing with great voices. So when I first heard Armed and Dangerous from the EP with Joey singing, which is what Johnny like hand-delivered to me, literally saying, this is what's going to turn you on this band, uh, it was a game-changer, and that's what made me be excited for spreading. So right. it was kind of like the table setter. 
Well, and that was right. the, that was the same for me as a fan because I I was into it right off the bat. Like I bought spreading the disease in the record store. Like that's how far back I went with Anthrax. So to me, I love that because if you're going through the big four, Slayer escaped me at the time because I wasn't into the satanic thing. I didn't like Tom's vocals. Megadeth I thought was okay, but Metallica and Anthrax were the two big ones for me because even though they're both thrash, they both had different sounds with the vocals, and I thought it was really cool. To this day, See, I, I would. I would love to, I, I've told this story a lot. I'm not going to tell the whole story again, but Johnny Z literally came to my radio show in 1983 with Kill em All under his arm unannounced and begged me to play it because he couldn't get anybody to play it. And I did literally for the first time on the air. And I always tell people all the time, it's like, I love to tell people like I heard the future, but I'd be lying if I said that because I honestly didn't know what I heard. And I, I was not like, I don't know, to me, it just, of course, now I get it and all that. And it's a whole different way to, to listen. And you're, you're used to it. But at that time, I didn't know how to process that. Like, I, I to me, it, it didn't really move me in any way, but just sound like this thing that I'd never heard before. But so the whole movement at that time, I was kind of a little behind on because until I heard the EP, and I heard a voice like Joey singing over that style of music. That's when it opened up my vision a little bit to say, okay, yeah, there is cool. Okay, now I get Metallica a little bit. Now I get Megadeth a little bit. I get Overkill. I get Testament. I get Slayer to some degree. But until the whole arrival of Joey and a singer, which I don't think can be overstated enough how unique that was, of what Anthrax did at that time. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com. T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N dot com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. So let's move forward uh, when you're talking about back in those days. I mean, nowadays, even with you guys right now, it takes five, six years to do a, a record. Spreading came out October 30th, 85, and Mung is March 22nd, 87. That's not even 18 months later. And once again, just a huge jump in, uh, well, not a huge jump. I mean, the, the songwriting is definitely even more slick and more focused, but the band is, is so much bigger now, too. Did you have a lot of momentum after spreading the disease going into Among, or was, was, was Among what really got you guys to the next level? Because I remember when Among came out, there was a big, big buzz about, about the band. Well, I'll tell you a, a quick little story. So spreading the disease, I took forever to get finished and scott will attest to that because he stayed up in ithaca while we all left and came back and went and came back and in that time another project was created which of course we'll get to that at some point but anyway um <laughs> i went back up to ithaca i don't remember why i went back up there for something and i got a rough we used mix to take of, the bus by the way to, we would take yeah. the bus from the port authority the six hour drive up to ithaca new york from the wow. city yeah yeah, so I was uh, on the way back home from Ithaca. I had the tape of the record, Spring Disease, and 
I felt like it almost sounded dated to me because it was it was taking so long. And I went back home and just felt something was missing from the record. And that's when I sent Scott a tape of another song, which would be called AIR eventually, and had to go back up to Ithaca. And we recorded AIR. And that became the first song on the record, which also became what was going to become Among the Living. That song was like the bridge from spreading yeah. to Among. Hmm. And thank God that that happened. Because yeah. um, I feel AIR was the way Anthrax sounded live, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. I thought spreading spreading the songs and spreading were great, but I wasn't crazy about the production, per se. It really didn't capture us live. So where Among did... And AIR did, and then boom, this is where we were going. Yeah, it was certainly it was all at the end. I mean, we we started in the studio on spreading. We started recording that record in October of '84, hmm. like around or October November maybe of of '84. And I basically, other than like maybe going home for Christmas of '84 and New Year's, I was in Ithaca, New York, until July 5th of '85 because that whole period of time of Joey joining the band, Joey learning the songs, us taking a break and going out on this like two week Northeast run. So Joey could even see what it was like to play shows. He had never seen stage diving or <laughs> anything like that. So right. we really wanted him to feel what it was like to be in anthrax. He, he had never seen or heard anything like this before. So we took a break and we did that. Uh, we we're trying to get songs finished, songs written it was just taking forever up in Ithaca. We had issues with Carl Kennedy, which we don't need to get into. But yeah, during that whole time, too, that's why SOD was written, because I was sitting around in Ithaca, New York, twiddling my thumbs. I had finished my guitar tracks months ago, like, and I, uh, that's how SOD was born. But yeah, Charlie, at the end of this process, it's like we're almost done with the record. And he cuts this demo of AIR and it's like the best song on the album. Mm. So yeah, it was absolutely like, okay, this is where we're going. Like if that song wasn't on spreading, it would have been the first song written for a monk. Yeah. And just a quick, why Ithaca, New York? That's where the studio was or? Yeah, we, we were supposed to, by the way, we were, we were supposed <laughs> to, uh, we were supposed to make the wreck. Well, we were supposed to make this full of metal at the same studio Metallica did Kill Em All, this place called Barrett Alley in Rochester. Mm -hmm. And uh, because Johnny now had like a deal going with this guy, Paul Curcio, who produced Kill Em All, and Chris Bubach, who was the engineer on Kill Em All. So we were all set to go to the same studio and, and do Fistful of Metal there. And we show up in Rochester, New York, in the middle of the night with our truck and all our gear and all this. And there's no... There's no board there. There's no console. They had gotten rid of the old console, and there was a new console coming. And they're like, we're not going to be ready for months. <laughs> so we then spent the next few days driving around upstate New York looking for studios, and we found Pyramid Sound in Ithaca, New York, and we met Alex Perialis. And this was like an amazing studio, way over our budget at the time for Fistful. And we called Johnny, and we were like, we got to do it here. This place is great. And Johnny made a deal with Alex and his dad who owned the studio and, you know, the rest is history. The rest so is they history. had spreading also was, was being done at Pyramid up in Ithaca. And uh, I have to just say one thing. Uh, Scott mentioned Alex Perialis, who, if it wasn't for Alex, I don't think we would have went back up there to do another record. Uh, we right. loved Alex Perialis and his attention to detail and his, he just made you feel like 
just comfortable and you were a part of the family up there. He's, he's such a great guy. And he's also on many other records like Overkill and Testament, you know, as a producer, guy, as an kind of engineer. Became, he kind of became like the Megaforce house producer after gotcha. that. He, he was like, anytime we signed the band, you know, Johnny would usually be like, by the way, what about Alice Perry Alice for this? And he ended up doing a lot of the Megaforce records. Yeah. So when you're talking about producer of Carl Kennedy and 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 Alex Perialis Perialis going back to among suddenly you have one of the greatest producers in rock and roll history and more importantly one of the greatest producers in Kiss history and, and you guys are huge Kiss fans in Eddie Kramer. How did you get him involved uh, to, to do that record? Well, God, yeah. by the way, well, we were, you know, we were, we were big time. Now we were big time. So, you know, but what was it that I'm made you kidding. big time? What, what was the big jump? Just the I'm, I'm kidding. I'm oh. kidding. We, we, <laughs> no, no, no. Well, you know, I, we were on a major label at this point because spreading what came out on a major label. So yeah. we felt like we were completely like, wow, now we, we've, we've raised the bar a bit and, you know, uh, if you look at some of the greatest albums, Eddie Kramer's name always came up on like most of the records that I loved and I know Scott loved. And, you know, secretly I would have this list of things to achieve within the band, like get Eddie Kramer, get Mort Trucker to do a, a characterization <laughs> of the band. From Mad uh, Magazine, yeah. You know, uh, get get the guy who did the cover of Led Zeppelin, to, you know, things like that. So, okay, who do you want to use? It's like, well, let me get my list. And here we go. So when Eddie signed on to do the record, I think all of us were just so happy, you know? Yeah. And I think, to, Chris, to go back to something you said earlier about, like, did we have momentum between spreading and among? Yeah, we, we, we absolutely did. You know, spreading did better than anybody thought it would better than, you know, I remember it coming out and it's selling like in the first week or something like, something like 19,000 copies or something. And everyone was just like freaking out because no Island didn't know what they signed really. And you know, it was just this thing that was building and building and building. And we did start touring our asses off in that period on, on spreading. We went out and, and played a lot of shows all through 86 and at the same time writing among the living while we were doing that. So we came off, you know, touring for spreading it, like in early 87, I remember it was the first time we went to Japan, I think. And, uh, so yeah, we were, we were definitely feeling ourselves and we were feeling the vibe of what was going on around us, certainly with our peers. And this thing was growing, you know, we saw instead of a hundred people in a 500, you know, capacity room, there was 500 people in a 500 mm -hmm. capacity right. room, you know, the whole thing was starting to grow and really build with us and around us. So going into the recording of, uh, of among, we certainly felt that, Oh, you know, people, people are feeling this. They're getting it around the world. People, are, they understand what's happening here. Yeah. It was a movement that was taking over and it wasn't just in America. It was, it was now it was all over the place. And, um, you know, we were just in the, we were in the center of it all and just going about it, you know? And sometimes I look back at that period and it's such a blur. I mean, you're, you're talking like being in Pensacola and then the next day you're flying to Finland to do a show. And then after you do that festival, you got to fly back to, to America to continue your U S tour. I mean, it was just 
nuts. Well, and you're like 23, yeah, we, 23. We came off spreading, I think the last like shows for spreading were in early 87, where I, I mentioned Japan, and then we went back to Europe with Metallica in early 87, when this was their first shows with Jason. And we went back and made up a couple of the gigs that got canceled after the bus accident and Cliff was killed. And uh, it was cool that we got to go back and play some more shows with them. And uh, I just remember, like, those are pretty much... Oh, no, and then... Oh, no, no, that's later. Uh, those those early 87 shows with Metallica in Europe, I think, I think were the last shows we did before we really started working on Among, before we went to Florida in the spring... Of uh, of eighty seven to record the record, if that if that makes sense. I'll just say this from like talking about the the growth of the band from a fan perspective and a local perspective, because that's the other thing too. I mean, even though I was always in Jersey, those guys were in New York. I mean, you know, growing up here, still living here, Anthrax was like one of ours. They were like a homegrown band. You know, they were everyone was rooting for them, and the jump from fistful and then to spreading i mean at that point on spreading i remember a full weekend you know sat friday saturday at lamore which was like the thing two nights in a row yeah we went we went from not being able to play lamore to like <laughs> yeah selling out the weekend <laughs> and then and then just you know going to those shows the vibe in the room that the, the fact that they were packed you know this whole thing of moshing and and stage diving which was a huge thing that was coming at that time and i was never into punk or hardcore so i didn't know much about that and all of a sudden i'm like why am i catching an elbow in the jaw just because i want to watch anthrax (laughs) and and not realizing that that was you know what you did there and i've talked to these guys about this a thousand times and i still want them to do it again one of these days the the vibe of going in that room the amps were covered in camouflage you guys could come out. What was it? The Blues Brothers theme? Blues Brothers, yeah. And then opening with AIR was like the most heavy, insane thing to this day that I, I one of the top metal things I've seen. It just was like such, it was just all coming together. And it was just really cool from, you know, to see these guys that were my age that I knew and that I would see, you know, go hanging out in front of Manny's trying to meet Kiss or, or right track or whatever and having all these mutual friends with them and then all of a sudden it's like holy shit they're doing two nights at Lemoore's they're on top of the world it was amazing I love the fact too <laughs> that you uh, recorded some of the record at Compass Point Studios which everyone from this era knows because that's where Maiden recorded Power Slave amongst others and all those pictures you'd see in Circus Magazine of them wearing the little wee Stuart Copeland shorts with super brown tans is that why you wanted to go there? <laughs> Well, we were on Island too, and 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 Chris Blackwell, the owner of Island Records, owned Compass Point. So there was just that we already had that connection as well to be able to go there. But yeah, of course, it was a dream come true for us being Maiden and and uh, ACDC, ACDC fans. Too, right? Didn't right, ACDC yeah. record there too? Yeah, they did. We couldn't believe it. You know, we were remember we were like twenty three years That's old. Right. Yeah, for twenty. Right. I mean, we're 23 years old. We're recording this record in Miami with Eddie Kramer and then knowing that we're going from Miami to the Bahamas to Compass Point where we're going to live in the Bahamas for a month while the record gets mixed. I mean, you know, all of a sudden we're, we're literally like, this is what our heroes do. We're, we're on the path. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We were living the, we were living the life. It's funny. The first night we got 
to Compass Point, um, we were staying in this big like condo area, whatever. And uh, there was this bar that was kind of maybe two or three blocks down the street. And uh, you two were just finishing mixing the Joshua Tree. Wow. Bono and Ed, Bono and Edge were at that bar that night. I didn't see them, but <laughs> we heard they just they were they were there. But anyway. Chris Blackwell owned that place. And it's funny, right next door to us was Robert Palmer. He used to live there. Hmm. And we would we would all be hanging outside and stuff. And then you'd see Robert Palmer come out in his boat and wave. And yeah. <laughs> do you remember that shit? It's, yep. it's crazy. And we're just like, we're a bunch of kids from the Bronx and Queens. It's like, literally, it was like the who let us in here kind of moment, you know? <laughs> Hey, yeah. let me ask let me ask something because talking about Eddie Kramer making that record because I, I was working at Megaforce then at that time like and I remember I remember a lot of phone calls because I literally <laughs> sat right next to Johnny because we were literally working out of his house and I remember there was there was definitely correct me if I'm wrong but there were definitely issues like you know Eddie Kramer even at that time and I love Eddie but at that time he was even considered to be more of an old school guy and he there, there was a lot of push pull in getting that the way you wanted it if i recall am i correct on that it yeah, wasn't so it much it, I mean, it wasn't so much the recording it was the mixing but i think after we got through the, the initial part of it and he understood where we wanted it and how we wanted the sound everything was great after that i mean yeah there was the first few days he he did he did a mix, and I mean, Charlie, maybe you remember, I, I always feel like it was Caught in a Mosh was the first track he mixed, and someone got us the message to say, all right, you know, come in from the beach, and uh, Eddie's got a, finally got a mix for us to hear. It had been like two days, I think, you know, for him to get a really a rough that he wanted us to be able to hear, and I remember we all sat in the control room, and he played it back, and everything was just a wash in tons of reverb, reverb, reverb and and just echoes and gates and compression and and it literally because the biggest record at that time was pyromania mm. that was like that game changer album with you know much production and so eddie's mixing caught in a mosh and he's trying to make it sound like that which of course doesn't work when you're playing 200 beats per minute mm. and uh it just sounded like a, a washing machine it, it was terrible and um, we just, I remember we were all kind of confused and looking at each other. And we started asking him, maybe he could tone down the reverb on the snare and do this and raise the guitars and just basically dry everything up was what we were looking for. And uh, he didn't want to hear it. He just kept telling us, you know, he wants to make a modern sounding rock wow. record, you know, like a modernist and a, and we were like, but we hired you because we love your seventies work. That's what we want. We want to, we want to sound like we sound in the room. We want to just sound like anthrax in the room, in your face, you know, just energy dry, just, just our natural power. And yeah, there was, there was a lot of back and forth over a day or two where we were just like, what do we do? We're sitting here having fights with Eddie Kramer. Like how did this happen? And then he did it. And I think he saw how excited we were when we liked the way it sounded. Then he understood it. And it, it, he, it was an education for him as well, because he had never worked with a band like us before. 
So it enabled him to, I think, change his ways and, and be able to hear something different. And I look, I give him props for wanting to make a modern sounding record, but that's, we didn't sound anything like Def Leppard in, in 1987. Because you, yeah. you gotta, you gotta think about this. Cause I re- I remember this really clearly. And I remember those phone calls and I remember there was tension, but the thing that, I, that you got to think about with Eddie Kramer from his perspective at that time, you're talking 87 or whatever, he had already been around as a producer for almost 20 years yeah. as yeah, a producer yeah. engineer. So it was kind of like, because we also worked with him Megaforce on, on, on two of the three A Trilly records that I was involved in. And that was obviously, you know, his comfort zone and what have you. But throwing out music to him like Anthrax, I think he probably looked at it as a way to kind of be viewed as a little more contemporary because a lot of those guys that had worked in the in the early seventies were trying to be relevant in the eighties. Right. So it was a, it was a great opportunity for him to be aligned with this up and coming emerging metal band at the time. But I think that you know that it probably took a little while for him to, to totally get where you guys were coming from. I mean, once he uh, once he understood it, because like when we were sitting in the room listening to it, I just felt like he was taking the essence of the song and just like, wow, it doesn't even sound like us anymore, you know? And um, I think, uh, you know, we left after the whole conversation and we came back and it was a completely different mix. And like Scott said, he had to be educated too. And and then bam, it was just, he was just running with everything and it was just, it was sounding great, you know? Well, just as a segue too, if you look at, at, at at the band that he had produced just the year before, uh, Raven, the Pack is Back record, that was a very slick Def Leppard sounding record, and I remember as a fan picking that one up and going, "This is, this is not Raven. This sucks." You know, there's it, a whole story there that I could remember too, because that's what they they just they lost their fan base over. They that. did. I mean, I was one of their them. manager. Their manager worked out of our office, and that whole thing was on Megaforce, and that was a really really rough time because. Johnny had a partner named Tony and Sajiri and they were both managing Raven and they really butted heads because Tony decided that he wanted Raven to go in that direction and get glossy and started wearing some makeup and putting them in these outfits and it, it destroyed the the yeah. hardcore, you know, metal fan base over that. So yeah, that was a really that was a slippery slope. Well, yeah, and we, we were not gonna go I mean look you listen to the songs we wrote for Among the Living. Um, no one's ever going to mistake us for a radio band. Right. So it was, but but the wrong production could have killed that record because it wouldn't have it wouldn't have had that punch in your face that it that it ended up having because we put our foot down as the band. I remember saying to Eddie because you know he said to me at one point he's like, "What do you think is your opinion, God?" And I was like, "No, it's that's not." That's not the case here at all. It's just that you're going to go on and make 50 more albums, but this is this is our record. It has to represent Anthrax, especially with the thrash movement, which was kind of the the antithesis to the Def Leppard, Motley Crue, Rat, White Snake, Poison, and, and people were getting sick of that. And when thrash came out, it was something so new and exciting and fresh and energetic. It would have been the worst thing you could have done to try and sound like one of those other you know, quote unquote hair metal bands when you guys were leading the the charge for thrash metal. Do you guys oh, yeah. have, do, do either of you guys have any of those mixes though? I'd love to hear them just for 
just for the hell of it. Do you have, or were they wiped? Mm. I don't. I wish. I wish I had a copy of that first that first mix he played us. We would have put it out on the Among the Living yeah, reissue, sure. you know, well, if, we, I, if we had it. Yeah, I think it was just completely gone, erased, because no, no one ever got a copy of it. We were brought in to listen. Mm. Yeah. And then we went nuts. We were like, what the <laughs> fuck is this? <laughs> I remember very clearly just being in the office and you know, Johnny getting up, you know, because he was very, could be very animated and pacing and he would hang up the phone. He'd like, by the way, I just talked to Scott. I, by the way, I got to get down there. You know, it was just, there was definitely, there was a time there from where I sat, which was literally right next to Johnny, but obviously not as directly involved. It almost felt like there was a point where it was like, we may have to bring somebody else in to mix this because it just felt, it felt like if it didn't get on track, that it was going to be a lot of drama. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, I remember our time down in Compass Point as being pretty pleasant. I don't. I don't remember any schism. Yeah. Any, other. Yeah. Anything. Other. It was. It was two or three days of, you know, the issues with the production. But like we said, everything got back on track pretty quickly. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. All right, Spreading the Disease versus Among the Living. We're going to start out with the album covers. Uh, obviously, Spreading is is the, the classic guy getting held down by kind of some sort of... Uh, it's so funny because what, what actually got me into listening to these two records is the situation we're going through right now and kind of making little jokes about Captain Trips. And we'll get into that. Of course, Captain Trips is from The Stand, the disease that basically you know destroys 99.4% of the population and is in the opening line of Among the Living, and of course the album Spreading the Disease. So a couple guys in hazmat suits holding somebody down, screaming on the cover of Spreading is very kind of almost poignant in this day and age uh, versus the cover of Among the Living, which is the one man standing out in the group of just a bunch of nameless, faceless clones, so to speak. So talk about those covers uh, briefly. Where would you get the idea for Spreading from? Uh, The idea for Spreading was... um basically the idea came i had this title spreading the disease and i just wanted to show uh you know one of our fans was at the show and then he's being wheeled into this room that looks like uh, a hospital and they're detecting him for the disease and basically it just went on from there and dealing with the um the art department at the record company i remember meeting with them and going over the whole design and everything like that and uh, it just, boom! It just fell into place, you know. Because you uh, had been you had been uh, snake bitten on the first fistful of metal. We always laugh about the how weird that cover is with the wrong hand coming out of the mouth and all that stuff. So I'm sure you really wanted a, a proper album cover on this one. Well, I mean, when you get someone like Dave Heffernan who's going to do the actual piece, uh, you know, this guy's going to he's going to do the, the the right thing by you because his art is just amazing. Um, so meeting with them and uh you know it was just an experience and it's like i always go back to uh, wanting to go to a real art 
you know, school to, to do this. And then I got my education through the art departments of these record companies, sitting with them, yeah. learn, learning about what colors are great for yeah. the album, you know. Uh, so, yeah, these were all things that just went into play. And then when it came time to do Among, uh, Don Brodigan was, was brought in to do the cover for Among. And then just I wanted this this man who was among the people who you knew was different. And then it just so happened that Scott was writing the song about the Stephen King book. And then the two just came together. And Don Brodigan had also done the artwork for the paperback version of the stand. Oh, really? Well, another. Yeah. And he, and he also did puppets. He did. No yes. kidding. Wow. It's funny because spreading the disease, I always thought that the guy on the cover was Dan Lilker. <laughs> no if you look at him no, it definitely not like <laughs> and how about for among the living is is that guy based on it because there's a movie called burnt offerings if you guys ever seen it. it's a crazy 70s horror movie with oliver reed and karen yeah, black oliver reed yeah oliver and the demon guy that always appears before somebody dies looks exactly like this freaking guy and he terrified me as a kid and when i saw that album i'm like oh my god that's the guy from burnt offerings Actually, he's like, he's supposed to be the preacher. And when we had days off on tours, all of us would go out and go to the movies. And horror movies were always one of the, the movies that we would always go see. And then we saw Poltergeist and Poltergeist 2. Mm. And there was this character in Poltergeist 2, of course. And, uh, yep, he his likeness may have ended up on the cover <laughs> yeah it was kind of like he that was the that was our kind of visualization of the randall flag character you know of from the stand or um or anyone who you know basically will control a group of people you know mm -hmm. brainwash people and uh you know you could even say it, it relates to where we are now with our president very similar <laughs> right 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 uh, all right, well, let's go opening tracks. AIR versus Among the Living. Eddie, what are your thoughts on those two songs, and which one do you like best? Oh, my God. That's hard. It That's is. really hard because they're both unbelievable show openers and album openers. But I'm I'm going to I'm going to go AIR because just because it just going back to what I said before, going to the shows um, remembering, you know, just the mayhem w when they came out and went into that song. To me, that song, even when you guys do it live still to this day, to me, it sounds totally out of place anywhere but as the opener of the show, just because it mm. was just su such a defining opener if you were into the band and seeing them in the clubs back in those days. But um, I don't know. I just think, and, and the fact that you guys said that that was sort of a bridge song between these two records. Now that you say that, it really feels that way to me listening to it and thinking about it. So by a nudge, I'm going AIR. Gotcha. Scott? Yo, AIR, if it, Charlie and I, certainly we were, we were listening to a lot of hardcore at that time when that was written. I mean, 1984 was a, that year. Certainly we were immersed in so much hardcore, New York hardcore bands, West Coast hardcore bands, British hardcore bands. Um, and that song really shows off certainly more than any other song on, on spreading. And it's the first time we had like the big mosh part 
in the middle, um, which was, you know, directly influenced by going to New York hardcore shows mm-hmm. and stuff like that. You know, and then, you know, Among the Living, what, I mean, what a f- song. Um, you know, I, I think they're both f***ing great. I think I'm, I'm also going to go AIR just because I have the feeling most of the rest of this is going to lean a different way for me. So this might be the one the one battle in my mind that is going to go spreading's way. What does AIR stand for? Adolescence in red. I thought I was, you know, <laughs> super smart with my, my take on Gershwin's Rhapsody in blue. <laughs> 23-year-old Jewish kid from the Bronx writing about uh, Gershwin. <laughs> Queens. I'm from Queens. Sorry, Queens. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Charlie, what do you think? Oh, I'm going to go AIR as well because it was a game changer. And without that song, there'd be no Among. Mm. And then probably there'd be no career. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'll go the opposite way. First of all, I just wanted to say, and Scott, you'll get a kick out of this. So my high school band, when we were looking for a name, we settled on Scimitar, of, of, as you do, which, of course, is a, a, a medieval sword, like Sinbad the Sailor. Yeah. And the T in Scimitar was an actual Scimitar in the logo. But my suggestion, because the three guys in the band were Kevin Ahoff, Chris Irvin, that's me, and the esteemed Warren Rumpel, as uh, Scott knows. <laughs> and so, of course, Ahoff, Irvin, Rumpel is AIR. And it's even perfect, too, because he was the guitar player singer. I was the bass player. Warren was the drummer. It's the perfect name, AIR. But I was outvoted by Scimitar. So there you go. <laughs> but I'm going to go with Among for a few reasons. And one uh, you know, if AIR is a 9.9, you know, uh, Among is a 10. Uh, a few reasons. One, you mentioned earlier, Scott, about your lyric writing. I, much like you, uh, am a huge Stephen King fan. The first book uh, by Stephen I was ever I ever read was given to me by my aunt, who was 10 years older than me. She said, you got to read this book. I was 12 years old. She gave me Carrie. And that's how I found out what a woman's period is. Not my mom <laughs> from the book Carrie. So there you go. Right, right. So, so when the opening line is disease, disease, spreading the disease with some help from Captain Trips, I was like, are you kidding me? Is this about the stand? Because there's no internet back then. There's no way to, I think you might have mentioned it in the lyrics that it had something to do with it, but I couldn't believe it. And right off the bat, I was, I was attached to the song. And also, this might be the first, taking SOD out of the equation, but this might be the first blast beat that I'd ever heard. Is this the first blast beat you ever played, Charlie, in an Anthrax song? There's no blast beat I, I, in Among the Living. At the very it's beginning? That's super fast. Isn't that a blast beat? It was super fast, but it wasn't like a, a blast type of beat. The first blast would be Milk from SOD. <laughs> <laughs> Great lyrics in that one, too, by the way, Scott. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com, to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. All right, uh, second song, uh, Lone Justice versus Cotton Amash, as you said. Uh, what do you think, Charlie? What's your favorite one of those two? I got to go Cotton Amash, but I, I do love Lone Justice, too. That's a tough one. Mm-hmm. 
I'm going to say Cotton Amash because the story surrounding it and man, I don't think Cotton Amash has come out of the set since we originally played it. It's always been a signature song of ours and people love it. But of course, the story behind Cotton Amash, we were playing Denver and our guitar tech, Art Ring, ran out because the kid was com- the kids were coming on stage like crazy and they were stomping all over the pedal boards and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Art came out to run and grab a kid and the kid grabbed Art and they both fell into the crowd. Art fell on the floor, hurt his back really bad, had to go to the hospital. After the show, he came back from the hospital and we were talking to him and he, came, he said, man, I got caught in a mosh. Bam! A light bulb <laughs> went off. And that was it. That song was uh, was born. What do you think, Scott? Oh, caught in a mosh, 100%. I like Lone Justice, but I, I don't think it I don't think it holds a candle to uh, Cotton Amash. Cotton Amash, for me, would be top three Anthrax songs for me, personally. So, um, yeah, I, that's an easy one for me. Definitely one of your biggest hits. And um, I like Lone Justice, like I said, because I actually bought Spreading first, uh, which most people probably did not. But uh, I love that bass line because I could actually play it. You know, I, I could play it on bass. <laughs> At least I thought I could, right? And then also, too, growing up in Winnipeg, Canada, I'd never heard the word mosh before. So I had no idea what that meant. Caught in a mosh. I had, I didn't know. I'd never heard that term. Because once again, it's easy to talk about this now in 2020, but in 1987, anthrax were very much pioneers in a lot of different ways from the terms mosh and not to kind of wearing the shorts on stage, which became a big thing for, for a while. Uh, first rap, rock, rap, rap metal songs and all that sort of thing. But, um, but yeah, I'd never heard that term mosh, so I actually learned something from Anthrax. But uh, I, I got to go with Cotton and Mosh. Well, both with great bass lines. Uh, Frank Bello, I think, is a very underrated bass player in the pantheon of, of heavy metal. He always has very interesting uh, and cool bass lines, and both of these songs have that. But I'll go with Mosh. How about you, Eddie? Well, I'm going to be the outlier here because although Caught in the Mosh is a Stone Cold Anthrax classic, and like they said, I don't think it's ever not been played at a show since it was debuted, I love Lone Justice. And I will give it the nod again slightly over Caught in the Mosh if I have to pick between the two. I just I love everything about the, the song. Joey's vocal is unbelievable mm-hmm. i love how i love how loud joey's vocal is it's like really out front to me and it just i just love the song i mean that was another one that when they weren't playing it i was the annoying always pestering them to play it because i love that song to death and it's it's just again man i mean there's just the way joey sings on that stuff it's just there seems like i don't know it just seems like there's more space for him to sing and he's his voice is just so opened up. And like you said, I mean, I agree with you. You know, I love Frankie's bass playing, always did. And both songs have great bass lines through them. But I, I love Lone Justice, so I'm giving that. Just like AIR gets the nod slightly, I'm going slight, slight, slight nod over over Mosh for me for Lone Justice. All right, all right. See, it's one of those things when people think about these two records – Sometimes it's not as much of a runaway on one side of the coin or the other as you might think. So, um, And this is a perfect example of this, and I'll start this one off of Madhouse. 
uh, versus I am the law. Dude, I, once again, I revisited these records over the last few days just to kind of brush up. And, and I think Madhouse is almost forgotten. Uh, not forgotten. You guys still play it quite a bit. But what a what a great tune. Great melody line. I love the... What, what was it listed as on Spreading the Disease, Scott? Did you call it Whammy Guitar or Wang Guitar? There's something that you called it on that on that record. Do you remember? Yeah. I can't remember. On, on Fistful, I think... I'm credited as rhythm and wang guitar. It's wang guitar. <laughs> I asked my friend that. He goes, wang guitar. And we're like, really? He goes, why do you think I remember that? Because you were the king of the wang guitar at the time. <laughs> Which, of course, is just the <laughs> like the total whammy bar type of a solo. Yeah, I don't know why. If that was just a New York thing, but like I remember going to the guitar shops on 48th Street and people would call it a wang bar. <laughs> Which, which, when I when I think about that now, it makes me think like it would be some type of, you know, it's like some Chinese invention, like or, or some, something something you no. find in a, in, a, in a sex shop, one of the two. Yeah, a wang bar. <laughs> which I, I like again, maybe that was just a New York thing, but I, I quickly grew out of that wang guitar. <laughs> but it, 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 it fits great. And here's another thing. I would have to say, uh, Mr. Jeff Tate, I think might have ripped something off from this song because the beginning of Madhouse is almost the same as the beginning of the Operation Mind Crime record, where the nurse comes in and gives the guy the shot. Oh, really? Well, have you ever heard that? Don't you think, Eddie? You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, who but came first? Well, who came the first? Guy, you did. The guy, the guy that gets the the whole open of that song, Chris, the Mr. Brown, time for your medication, Mr. Brown, yeah. and the guy doing that laugh is an old, old, old friend of the three of us from new york that was you know grew up with uh charlie and scott this guy tom brown was like kind of like the original anthrax fan or whatever and uh that was his big moment man and tommy's even in the video isn't he doing it yeah he's yeah he's in the video which of course which of course was a banned video let's not forget banned from mtv because there's too many psychos in it yep Drugs or whatever. Uh, but but uh, I and the law, of course, uh, written about Judge Dredd. Another thing that I uh, I knew about right away. I love the fact that you use Iso Chamber, uh, no Iso Iso Cube. Sorry, Iso Cube in a song, which was great. A very Iron Maiden style science fiction thing. And I think the song is pretty cool. But I got to go with Madhouse as just being this classic Anthrax uh, Anthrax song with a great chorus and lots of fun. So, what do you think, Scott? Well, yeah, Madhouse. I guess you could kind of consider that to be our first. I'm doing finger quotes right now, hit, <laughs> you know, that was like the, the song we decided would be the single off of spreading the disease. And we shot the, the video for it with all of our friends playing mental patients at this, <laughs> this old uh, mental hospital on Staten Island that wasn't used anymore. And it was freezing cold and the mental patients start a mosh pit. And uh, for some reason, MTV at the time wouldn't play it based on their reasoning that we were making fun of mental patients. <laughs> but uh yeah and look it's a it's a great song you know what a great riff yeah charlie wrote i remember when he gave my him showing me the dan and 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 uh you know the riff is great that i mean the whole the whole thing is great and then you know i'm the lot two totally different type of songs you know madhouse is like a four minute straight ahead mid-tempo you know, uh, crunchy thing. And then I am the law is kind of like an epic, you know, it's got many different parts. It's got the whole middle fast part. I remember, I remember Charlie, I am the law and another one coming up Indians. We had those songs. Charlie had come in with those riffs 
while we were still touring on spreading the disease, we were actually playing those songs. If I'm not mistaken, already we played them in Japan we did. on the spreading tour before those songs were even re- were recorded for among. Um, I'm going to go law. Sorry, I'm being long winded, but I'm going to go with I am the law for me. Um, it's just one of those songs that again, um, it's an anthem. It's one of our biggest anthems as big as Madhouse is. Um, for me, I am the law is even bigger. It's the song that broke us in the UK. Um, it just, it just became such an epic thing for us. And, uh, and I just love the fact that I got to write a song about judge dread and we got to put him on a (laughs) t-shirt. What do you think, Eddie? I go on this one, I Am The Law. It's one of my all-time favorite Anthrax songs. Like Scott said, it's more of an epic. I liked Madhouse. when I, I remember thinking that, like, I, I was of the school that AIR or Lone Justice should have been the single, the lead single from Spreading. I liked Madhouse, but it was never close to one of my favorite Anthrax songs where... I am the law is. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that, you know, joking about the Madhouse video being banned, that was like a really big problem at the time because I remember having been around the office and stuff. And look, I mean, at that time, if you weren't on MTV, you weren't anywhere mm-hmm. and everybody needed to get on MTV. So it really sucked at that time that although MTV, I think, did end up playing it a few times. And we had another channel, at least in New Jersey. I think it was in New York, too, at the time, called U68. You guys oh, remember right. that? Oh, yeah. Yep. The Power Hour. And they would play music videos. And I think they played it. They're, they actually, there were a few bands that they played. They, they played, like, White Lion before White Lion broke. They played Madhouse a little bit. So there was, like, an, a local alternative. But the fact that Madhouse couldn't get, like, a regular rotation on MTV for whatever reason was a real really hurt the record and hurt the chance of that song being bigger than it, it it ended up being. But all that being said, I mean, I, I just think, I just think I am the laws. I mean, the audience response to it singing, the different parts, mm-hmm. to it, just everything about it. It's just, it's just a way, way better song to me. So I go, I am the law. Quick, uh, quick segue before we go to Charlie. Do you guys watch uh, the news at all with, with, with the press conferences with uh, Anthony Fauci and with Trump, whether it's Fox News or CNN? Do you ever watch those press conferences? Of course, yeah. You ever see the guy called John Roberts? He's the gray-haired guy, always asks a question. Anyways, next time you watch... He was a Canadian VJ, right? He used to be the host of the Power Hour on Much Music. He was the guy introducing <laughs> the Anthrax videos and the Kick-Ax videos and the Raven videos, and now he's asking the president questions. <laughs> <laughs> wow you never know That's amazing charlie i am the law or uh or uh, uh madhouse well i mean madhouse was man that became such a signature song for us so i'm gonna have to go madhouse and i think because of matt because of the madhouse video as well um when that video used to be played at lamore it would go they would go nuts uh oh, yeah. even, even though we weren't playing hmm. they would show the video and the crowd would go nuts and I really think that not just our video, but a lot of other videos that weren't being played on MTV, I think that was one of the catalysts to have a headbangers ball because they needed some sort of show on MTV to showcase these hard rock and metal bands. And I think that was one of the reasons why they did create the headbangers ball. Hmm. I forgot about that. They used to drop that screen used to coil <laughs> down. 
at Lemoore's and used to drop and they would play videos and it was like a big deal. But for yeah. you guys, it was the same, you know, you were local guys, man. I mean, you grew up going to Lemoore. So I remember for me, I mean, it was like a great sense of pride. It's just like, look, a band that's coming out of here made a video, you know, that, that in and of itself was just like so cool. Yeah. It was a moment. I mean, it was like starting to spread and, uh, and that's why I got it. I mean, dude, I love I Am The Law. I mean, what better? Come on. I mean, here we here we get a chance to, you know, put all the ingredients in a song about the things that we truly love, you know? So, um, and I remember that song originally, the riff, we used to play it at sound checks and people would hear it and they said it sounded like Godzilla marching to New York. <laughs> um, and uh, we didn't go that route, but we went the Judge Dredd route. And I remember... Uh, when we got the okay from uh, what, what was it, 2000 AD? Who put that out? Who, they gave yeah. us the, lic- the licensing to to use Judge Dredd, and man, sh- was just starting to happen. And uh, yeah, so I got to go Madhouse, but I also love Hang a Lot. The way, real quick, last thing on this, I remember again. These are just these memories just coming back to me working in the Megaforce office. But there was a lot of like promotional posters and 12-inch singles and picture discs and all this stuff, which I probably still have somewhere, of I Am The Law as a single. Because yep. it was like a pretty big single outside of America. It was huge. Yeah. yeah. Here's a little-known little, little tidbit. Well, maybe not, but the I Am The Law 12-inch in the UK, which we released, was the first appearance of I'm The Man. We released I'm The Man wow. on the, the B-side of the I Am The Law 12-inch because we figured, well... It's just the B-side of the 12-inch, so if people didn't want to string us up for doing a rap song, it'll disappear really quick because it's just the B-side of a 12-inch. <laughs> little, little did you know. And, and it did the opposite. <laughs> by, right. the way, if you wanna, by the way, if you want to see the, the long, ball-busting history of me and the respective members of Anthrax, if you look closely on the I Am The Man album cover behind Frankie's head in the graffiti on the wall, it says, kiss my ass, head trunk. I remember that. <laughs> on the album cover. And if you look at outtakes from the session where Frankie's head is slightly moved different, you see most of it on the cover as it is. But if you see the outtakes of the photo, it's clearly there because his head moved. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. All right, let's go to uh, SSC, Stand or Fall versus uh, NFL, Evil Nicky Fesson. Uh, and it's funny because I remember in Circus Magazine, which was the uh, the uh, the high point of rock and roll news at the time? They said that Anthrax's new record, Among the Living, is coming out with songs like Cotton Amash, I'm the Law, and NFL. And I was like, they wrote a song about the f- NFL. Like, what, what the hell? <laughs> you that you didn't. You couldn't. You you didn't get Kerrang magazine and, and no, then at that point. No, you had to go to the one um, uh, like the the import uh, magazine store, but the Kerrang was ten dollars. I couldn't afford that, so. I just oh, had my little circus magazine subscription. <laughs> That's right. all we had. But um, so first, SSC is kind of the little uh, Arabic intro before stand or fall. Uh, SSC, what does that stand for? Suck some cock. <laughs> is, that, is that what it really stands for? <laughs> it sure does. It was that was a Danny Spitzism. <laughs> okay, there you go. A little bit of intro and goes into actually listening back to stand or fall. I forgot how 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 good this song is. Almost from a very melodic pop standpoint. Like if you slowed this song down 
it's got a lot of journey type melody lines uh it really is a, a very melodic kind of, like I said, uh, not pop because that's too much, but more of an of a, of a AOR rock type tune just sped up to the nth degree. Um, very, very cool song. But once again, NFL, one of your one of your biggest tunes or your biggest hits. Great harmony part, great riff. Where did you get the idea to spell nice life backwards, Scott? Actually, that goes back to Tom Brown. He would always pronounce words in reverse and it just yeah. became a it just became a thing if we were going to insult somebody we didn't say the word we said it in reverse so they had no <laughs> idea what we were talking about which which was pretty funny because when i first met scott and those guys from queens they had certain things too that they would say like boom and B-O-L- not B-O-L-N stood for bone and that meant like bringer of late news like if someone said something <laughs> and then five, five minutes later the guy another guy said the exact same thing you would just look at them and go bone you know so <laughs> these were just things that again we were just using all the ingredients and putting it in you know it's great stuff but uh, I gotta go with uh, I gotta go with NFL Scott, did, did nice life? Did that was a, a lyric that you wanted to write, or, or what was the idea behind this song? Yeah, we like Charlie said, we that was a like a title before the song situation. NFL, okay. from the confession, it was a thing we were already saying. Mm. We like you'd just see, some, gotcha. We'd be at Lamores and see some asshole or whatever, and invariably somebody would say like. Pfft nice fucking life or or just even better, just NFL because right. obviously the person had no idea what we were saying. And, um, so yeah, it, we had, we kind of had that as one of our, just inside the joke. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. We had this inside joke already. And then, um, I had read that the, the Belushi book, uh, wired, I had read that a few years before, mm. um, and somehow in my brain, I don't know, the two just went together because I was such a fan of, of John Belushi's and at the time Anthrax, we weren't straight edge, like proponents of straight edge with X's on our hands and, you know, uh, telling people don't drink or don't smoke or whatever. Um, but none of us really at that point in time, we pretty much didn't drink mm-hmm. or smoke weed. It's just who we were as people. Um, well, not, I shouldn't say all of us, but certainly three of us, me, yeah, me, Charlie and Frankie, didn't really drink or smoke and so it was just kind of i don't know it all just kind of fit together and and the idea of nice life and what a waste you know if we could have still had john belushi or anyone else in that that scenario you know there's just been such a loss of talent obviously throughout the decades for really unnecessary reasons and so that's just where that that came from as a 23 year old kid who really didn't drink or smoke at the time and didn't really understand why somebody would choose that over life. <laughs> so NFL or, or standard fall for you? Oh, NFL a hundred percent. I mean, God, the, the riffs in that song, uh, the, the chorus, the, the middle breakdown part with that, um, that guitar part, which was kind of like a proto black metal riff, even before black metal existed. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm not, I'm not making that up. I've had black metal guys tell me that the riff, that one part in that song, it was very black metal before black metal. Um, and uh, as far as stand or fall, I mean, I, I kind of like it. I really like the main riff, the dan and an and 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 I really like that part, but nah, that's about it. Gotcha. How about you, Charlie? 
Um, I, I love Stand or Fall because it was the first song that I felt that uh, uh, just had to come out because it just had this riff in it and then it had this melodic part um, that was a, was was new. Never had anything like that before, you know. Um, so I love Stand or Fall. Uh, I don't think we played it much live because we just didn't, you know. Um, but if I had to choose NFL or Stand Up All, I'd probably go NFL just because it's just one of those thrash. Just it's so thrashy, you know, and it just has these insane parts that all work, you know. And that, and then I love the whole John Belushi topic. Mm-hmm. Another great baseline from Frankie on that one too. Uh, what do you think, Eddie? Uh, NFL. I mean, I like Stand or Fall, but NFL, the the riff, there's just so much going on in that song. And it's just, uh, it's always great live. The crowd, you know, goes nuts storing it. It's just the riff. I mean, just the opening riff of the song, it just sticks in your head. It's, it's, it's awesome. I mean, and you know, it's funny because I actually related to that lyric and the sentiment of that song and where they were coming from with it, because I, I'm glad one of you guys said the Belushi thing, because I remember hearing that back then, that, that it was sort of like uh, inspired in some way by him dying. But like most of the guys in Anthrax, I also growing up was ne- never like, again, not a straight edge guy, not a preacher or anything about it, but I just wasn't a partier. I did. I hardly ever drank when I did. I made a count, but I, <laughs> I did. It's kind of like to this day. I mean, I drink. If I drink, I'm kind of going to drink. Otherwise, I don't just social drink. But I might drink like once a month, if that, not even. So that that's just how I always was back then too. And I would see the club scene, and I would see like so many people like every night they're sloshed, getting pulled out of the shows. I would go to high school, go to school, or talk to people, and they'd be like, "I went to a show, man. I don't even remember it. I was so hammered." And I was kind of like, that's kind of like defeats the purpose of going to see a band you love, doesn't it? Like, I want to remember these great shows that I went to. So I really related to the subject matter of that about, you know, because I was made fun of and marginalized for being into this music. Still am after nothing's changed for 40 years. But, um, you know, I I just I like that aspect of it. It's kind of like you didn't have to be like in that crowd of being up and doing blow and getting hammered and bragging about the fact that you don't remember the show the night before so the message kind of the message of it the spirit of it and also just the fact that the song is i think incredible and the riff is incredible i i go nfl do you want a beautiful lawn enter true green the easiest way to get a great lawn just water and mow and they'll do the rest weed control fertilization aeration and more true green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the pga tour and they have a verified best price which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality you do you let true green do your lawn care visit truegreen.com t-r-u-g-r-e-e-n.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed all right, Edward, go ahead with your thoughts on the enemy versus skeleton in the closet. Oh, <laughs> skeletons is like, to me, skeletons is like almost anthrax doing prog at times just because like the riffage is mm-hmm. just insane. But I love the enemy. <laughs> oh, my God. I love the enemy so much. And I love just the groove of it again there's something about these songs that i love so much on spreading that not only do i love the songs 
but I love the way Joey sings them. His voice is insane to me on spreading disease in a good way. It just seems like it's really open and there's like the way he sings over the top of everything and the way his voice sits in the mix over the riffs and a song like the enemy just, I love it. I'm, I go enemy. What do you think, Charlie? Uh, skeletons because it's one of my favorite songs of that record because it's just so relentless. And, uh, I remember this is going back of course, but like gung ho, and skeletons had at the time some of the fastest double kick and i remember always pushing it pushing it pushing it pushing it and um that song skeletons is just relentless and uh you know if you think back to 86 you know four records came out and it would be among puppets uh of course rain and blood and then of course uh, cells uh, cells and all those records were pushing it, pushing the envelope. And it's funny how all four records, none of them sound the same. That's right. They're all, they're all so different in their own, in their own way, you know, and just remember how our record was so different from those records. But yet I love those records because it was all part of this umbrella, this movement, you know, and I think skeletons is one of those thrash metal, you know, gems that, Maybe people should revisit. What do you think, Scott? Um, yeah, I'm going to go skeletons too, just because I, I feel like it. It definitely. Um, it's one of those songs to me that if I was putting together a list of ten songs of what is Anthrax for someone who's never heard us before, that song would go on the list because it is on the most thrashy end of the spectrum um, of anything we've ever done. Um, and don't get me wrong, I love the enemy. I I, I felt like. On spreading, that was, for me, lyrically, that was probably the toughest and, in to my mind, the most important lyrics I was writing, obviously, because it was it was about the Holocaust. Ironically, so is, so is Skeletons. Skeletons. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, so yeah. it's funny that the two Holocaust songs are going <laughs> against each other. But, yeah, but The Enemy, you know, that was the, my first foray into that world and trying to express my feelings and emotions about that dark part of our history. Um, and then of course you've got the, the power station influenced the drumming intro (laughs) (laughs) because we loved that power station record back then and, and the gated reverb drums. And we wanted to do something like that, but in the context of a heavy metal song. Um, so I, you know, I think the enemy was a really big song for us. And was certainly different than, I think, most of spreading the disease. But I, I would definitely have to go skeletons. To me, the thing, the thing about Enemy, it was like, the Enemy to me is was Anthrax doing like more traditional metal. Like yeah. more mm. Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, like the bread and butter metal that I loved. Because it wasn't so fast. And it just had this big open space and this groove. And and then Joey's voice incredible over the top of it. So that's that's why that song so connected with me. Beyond the message, everything that I mean, the whole thing is so great. But the the thing with skeletons was, I mean, I always liked skeletons, but where I got new appreciation for skeletons is when you guys did among, I guess it was for the anniversary, start to finish or whatever, and mm-hmm. when, you, when you played that again recently live. And watching you guys play it live, I was like, damn, that that is like some of the parts in there. Like you said, it's just relentless. It's unbelievable. So I definitely got a whole new 
appreciation for skeletons almost sort of recently, but you know, for me, the, the enemy was always well, see, my favorite. And it's the other side of the coin for me. If you would have asked me last week which one is better, I would I would have said skeletons in a, in a second. But once once again, revisiting this record, and that's one of the things I love about the classic album clashes is really going through it. The enemy just jumped out to me, and I forgot this song is great. And you mentioned skeletons being um, kind of proggy, Eddie. I think the enemy is also very proggy with that intro and the sliding bass line and. Once again, the gated drums power station, I was going to say the same thing. It's it's what you guys were trying to avoid on Among. You used on this with that very 80s sounding. And uh, Skeletons, once again, Scott, I was on to you from the start. The fact that you wrote it about App Pupil. And to me, that was even more impressive because that showed how much of a King fanatic you were because it wasn't even a full novel. It was a novella from the Different Seasons compilation. And so I love the lyrics. I love, once again, the bass breakdown. But to me, uh, if you ask me next, next week, my mind might change. But as of today, I like The Enemy uh, better. That's, 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 that's my favorite one right there. Um, cool. All right. And, and I was going to say, too, just quickly, it's, it's interesting how, how so many albums from this time frame had sister albums. Like uh, Ride the Lightning and Master where basically you could take one track and match it with the next. And this album very much has that with, with Among, a super fast killer opener, AAR and Among the Living, a crazy super fast ending and gung-ho and, and, and Imitation of Life, five songs on the first side, four songs on the second side. There's a lot of uh, dichotomy there. So, uh, And speaking of the second side, Aftershock versus Indians, nothing down about this, but Aftershock is, is, is a little bit more stock for me. Um, whereas Indians is probably to this day, if not the best Anthrax song, definitely one of the best live songs. Uh, I don't know if you could get away with calling a song Indians nowadays. You you might have to call it First Nation if you're from Canada. You can't say the word Indian anymore, so you might want to introduce this as First Nation from now on. Cry for the First Nation, but um, I'm gonna go with oh Indians. Boy. <laughs> Where did you get the idea to write a song called Indians, Scott? Um, it was just off of Charlie's riff. Charlie came in with the dan and yeah. and it sounded like F Troop. Do you remember that show? <laughs> yeah, totally right. It's exactly and, what and, we were doing. <laughs> yeah, and any time, any, whenever the Indians would show up on F Troop, you would hear that. So it was kind of like, it just, you know, but obviously the lyrics aren't making fun of or, or making light in any way, shape or form. And of course, in when I was writing the lyrics to that in 1986, the, the idea of, you know, only calling, only using terms first nation or native American or indigenous people. Um, none of that existed yet. And if it did, then that's what we would have called it. <laughs> we would have been called indigenous people, but, uh, um, but Indians is what we knew, and uh, and I think the lyrics stand for themselves of, of what I certainly was feeling about it and the plight of the American Native, uh, you know, peoples. And I, of course, I go with that song. To me, this isn't even a contest to me. I mean, Aftershock is yeah, it's okay. It's got some good. I think it's got good riffs and stuff. And in the context of spreading, it's definitely a heavy song, but it doesn't come close to. Two Indians. I mean, for me, that's it's not even close. Indians is uh, again top three, probably, and and uh, um, just the riffing, the way the whole song came together, the the fucking war dance yes. part. That's been the biggest 
one of the biggest parts of our show since 1987. So, um, yeah, that, that one, I mean, to me, Indians almost maybe beats any song in our history. But uh, that's another conversation. I was going to say that War Dance is just as, uh, as, as iconic as a, as a middle eight breakdown section as, as the one in Angel of Death or the one in Blackened. It's right up there with one of the greatest moments in, in thrash metal history for sure. What do you think, Eddie? Uh, Indians, easily. I mean, it's one of the all-time great Anthrax songs. It's still great when you hear it live. But like you said, the middle part, I mean, everything about it. And, and it's just, I mean, I don't, don't, I, mean, I don't want to short sell Aftershock because I do like a lot of things about it. And it really chugs along. But Indians is just, I mean, it's one of the all-time classic songs. And, and you know, I would argue that in terms of, you know, in terms of actual biggest known anthrax songs that they wrote because antisocial and got the time obviously are covers i would say that indians is absolutely like in the top one or two um even coming from a radio perspective i mean unfortunately it's a band that doesn't really get mainstream radio airplay but if they did you know a song like indians or like later on maybe something like only would be the song the two you know songs that if rock radio was ever going to play an original anthrax song would be the ones so but it's also a great song Uh, and i'll give you you give your listeners a little fun fact again about my personal anthrax history the video for anthrax features uh, for indians features joey wearing a headdress and i don't know if scott and charlie even know this but i was the one who bought that headdress i remember delivered it johnny z gave me the credit card for megaforce because <laughs> let, 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 they, they were doing the video where was that video it was like in a fort or something no no it was, it was in uh, jersey right outside the tunnel right out yeah right where uh capital theater or something no it wasn't the capital it was some old theater like right outside the midtown tunnel and whatever part of jersey that is over there right where but it was in the capital it was right where the tube bar used to be. What's that? Jersey City? Yeah, near oh, Jersey yeah. City, not far from there. So so I remember the song it you know, the song being Indians, and I don't remember where the idea came from for the headdress, but I remember saying to Johnny in the office, because there, there's this place by my house still, it's still there to this day. It's in Flanders, New Jersey. It's called the Cherokee Trading Post. And it's like a souvenir store. And for whatever reason, when I would drive by there, they had this huge headdress in the window and I drove by it for years and I'd see it there for years. I'm like, who's ever going to buy that? And then we were in the office and I remember Johnny talking about the production of the video and what have you. And I think it was Johnny. I don't remember who said something like, you know, you know, be, you know, be amazing is we get a headdress. Joey could wear, come out in the headdress or whatever. And I was like, I know where to get one. And Johnny, I'll never forget. He gave me his Amex. He goes, get it. And I went to this place and I walked in and I was like, I want the headdress. And the guy looked at me like, what? Like, yeah, I'm a 22-year-old kid. Like, what do you want that for? And I was just like, you know, give me I'm in the village, card. people. And I swear to God, the thing was so long and I had a small car at the time. I remember like really trying to not damage it and pack it into the back seat. And, and um, I don't remember if I drove it to the office or straight to the chute. And because there's photos, my friend Ron Akiyama has photos of me standing on the set with you guys during downtime of that shoot. 
And I remember bringing the video, bringing the headdress, and then Joey wore it. And then it became a thing where when they played live, you know, Joey would have to come out wearing it. And I don't know how long the one I bought lasted, but I think after like the first tour or two, it sort of fell apart and the new one had to come in. <laughs> Is Joey Indian or he's Italian, right? He's Italian, but I think I, I don't remember if it was on his mom's side. Maybe a, there was some part Indian in there. It was his mother's side. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. He's kind of got that look to him a bit. What do you think, Charlie? Any memories? Obviously, we know which one you're going to pick. Uh, obviously, it's going to be Indians. And, you know, basically what Scott was saying, it became such a signature song, you know, that was attached to us. And, um, you know, I remember playing certain areas and then we would have, you know, Native American fans coming down and uh, we would meet them and they would tell us their stories and stuff and how honored they were that we were we wrote a song Mm-hmm. about their, you know, their culture, their where they came from. And, um, uh, yeah, it was, it's, you know, it just meant a lot. And, and like I said, that song has never came out, come out of the set either. And it's become a big hit. The headdress thing came from before that, uh, somebody would, uh, I, I don't know when it was, but someone threw a, a headdress on stage one time and, um, Joey, Joey Ward. It was a small one. And I think that's how it all happened. It's so great. Like I said, I think Ward Ants, Ward Ants, I must have yelled that even when we did the shows together. I always go stand on the side of the stage just so I could yell, Ward Ants. It's always a good time. <laughs> the the, the, the sold-out crowd in Kufstein went nuts for that song, I remember. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, Armed and Dangerous versus One World. Uh, what do you think, Eddie? Uh, this may be the easiest one for me on here, potentially. Armed and Dangerous all the way. I love Armed and Dangerous. Armed and Dangerous is my gateway song into getting into Anthrax. Going back to the EP, it was the first time I heard Joey sing. Although I think it's a different mix that's on here than the EP. You guys could tell me more on that. But um, I just I just love Armed and Dangerous. And I mean, it was the, in a way, in a way, Armed and Dangerous, the song is the thing that got me into this style of metal because it was like, you know, it's like easing me in because of the way it starts and hearing Joey's voice and then it gets heavier and it builds and then it gets fast. And I'm like, it was kind of, in a way, it spoon fed me the whole emergence of thrash. And, uh, because it had so many elements of the other sort of rock and metal that I loved. So uh, I'm, I'm hardcore armed, uh, armed and dangerous all the way. How about you, Charlie? Ooh, I'm going to go with one world. Cause I was never a big fan of armed and dangerous. <laughs> I like one world. It's just the, 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 the beginning of it. And I remember when we did the among album in its entirety, I look forward to that song. Mm. Loved it. I just love it. I love the intro. I love everything about it. It's got a great opening drum fill to it as well. One world, right? Um, yeah. As far as Armed and Dangerous for me, uh, I think it is a great song. And once again, it's one of those ones that, that when I heard it back after not hearing it for years, uh, really, really cool. It's kind of like, it's not a fade to black, but it is kind of the, the classic thrash starting out slow, killer of giants, Aussie type thing where it, it gets into it. And by the end of it, it's just super fast and crazy um let me ask you a question who played the solo on armed and dangerous 
Is that Spitz? So what? Look, yeah, our- yeah, of course. It yeah, sounds it sounds different to me. I thought maybe it might be Charlie or Scott that played the solo on that, but um, yeah. Once again, One World is one of those kind of quote unquote deep tracks. That's not a deep track. Great beginning. I love the part. It's like a, it's almost like a ride the lightning. Bow now, now now, down now, now now, bow now, bow now. Very very cool. Very thrashy. And uh, I got to go with One World for me as well. How about you, Scott? Hey, real quick, is it a different mix from the EP to that? It's different, right? It it is. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it's not a re-record. It's just a different mix. It's just a different mix. Yeah. What do you think, Scott? I'm going to go one world as as well. Um, and I think probably it was when we were doing. I kind of forgot about that song. I you know I right. feel maybe similar to, to Charlie in that. Um, but and then when we were doing the Among the Kings tour, um, it became one of my favorite songs of the night to play that the riffs in that song are almost as relentless as skeletons from just the guitar riff, guitar playing mm-hmm. point of view. And it was always a challenge every night. There's this one part, the part, that part is really, really, really hard to play. <laughs> so it was, it was a, it was a challenge for me every night to, to, to play that song and that doesn't happen very often in our set where there's something where I'm like wow I don't even know if I could play this correctly I really needed to bear down and uh, yeah I kind of I kind of had an uh, fell, re-fell in love with that song again after that Among the Kings tour so I, I'm going to go I'm going to go One World on that one I mean I think Armed and Dangerous is cool I, I love the main riff in that song. I love the harmony part in that song. I just th- just think for me, there's I have, and I'm like I don't need to get into it now. But there's I have too many negative memories of that song and that time and playing that song pre Joey. That's why I yeah right that much either. Yeah, and I'm I'm talking pre Joey. It has nothing to do with Joey. This is pre Joey. Like I said earlier, we were playing Armed and Dangerous before Joey was even in the band. And I think that kind of ruins it for me. <laughs> Which makes perfect sense. I mean, I can totally understand that. All right, let's go over. Well, I was going to ask you quickly, for, for the chorus of that, the part that you just described, but the, the, the vocal over top, it's like one, two. It sounds like not yeah, a Yeah, one, lot. two, not, three, four, die, right? Okay. That part. I almost thought it was one, two, yeah. not, three, four, mosh for some reason. Which it could be that's why i always sang it and that's the way i'll continue to sing it <laughs> uh all right as we get near the rec- end of the record here medusa uh versus adi horror of it all you guys got more uh initials here than than ozzy and sabbath put together just on these two records what does adi stand for <laughs> arabian douche intro <laughs> And the reason being is Spitz got, at some point, he kind of got all hooked into these <laughs> Arabian-sounding scales. They probably have, there's probably a, 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 an actual, did you just say the name for them, Charlie? Mixolydian. Mixolydian scales? Yeah. I don't know, but yeah. he was started playing all these scales that sounded like you're watching a, a, a an Aladdin movie. <laughs> and... Uh, and it was really annoying, and it and it, it wasn't very good. And I remember he would work on solos, and we'd be like, less of that, less of that, you know. And 
And then he had this piece, I guess he had this, I don't even remember. He had this thing, this thing that he was working on. And um, I want to, I want to say it was probably Frankie who said enough with this Arabian douche intro. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds so Frankie. Because sucks also sounds like an Arabian douche intro. They both have similar vibes to it. (laughs) If you, if you, uh, did you agree that sucks some also has a little bit of Arabian douche intro in it. Kind of similar. Oh, probably, yeah, yeah, I think so. I, I don't really. I've, I haven't listened to that in probably thirty something years, so I don't really remember it. But probably. So <laughs> so continue on, Scott. Horror of it all versus Medusa. Oh man, I got to go first. This is a tough one because even though you know, like I said, we at way at the beginning of this, I didn't. I, I'm pretty sure I didn't contribute to the lyrics on Medusa. I may. I don't. I don't remember honestly, but um, I do love that song. I love the riffs and I love playing it live. I feel like the audience really like people love it. People go crazy for that song in a way. Like sometimes I feel like. Like, why are you going so crazy for this one? This is like, again, it, in the vein of Madhouse, it's kind of like a mid-tempo, crunchy riff, very straight-ahead, simple arrangement, you know? Um, and then you start that song, and a big pit will break out. And I'm like, this isn't a thrash song. I don't, I don't, yeah. but people love it. And I love that song, too. I, I think, sadly, it's up against, for me personally, because, you know, the subject matter of horror of it all, which was written about the accident uh, and losing Cliff um, wow. it's kind of hard you know it's kind of hard for me to um, not have horror of it all be my choice because for, you know that song just for me personally emotionally means so much more to me than Medusa does mm-hmm. and of course it just being uh, f- epic I mean it just the, it's an epic song the riffs in that song I, I, I love them the whole end section is some of the it, the fastest we've ever played when we fall, we it builds and builds and builds and builds and we get to that end riff when we're going down it's ridiculous and um yeah for me that um definitely horror of it all what do you think charlie uh well we talked about medusa earlier and you know there's a history about it and i love that song but uh probably have to go with horror of it all as well which i mean when we first started doing this i i think we we knew this was going to be kind of lopsided you know mm-hmm. well for us so, anyway yeah for me for and us, you, it was lopsided. yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah but yeah i mean god there's so many cool things about medusa but then there's so many cool things about horror of it all you know yeah the cliff burton reference the um it was one of those songs that we had to kind of almost restrain ourselves to kind of keep playing slow and then it was gradually building and hold on until the end to kind of let it go you know what mm-hmm. i mean and i remember when we played it live we would play it so much faster too and it was so challenging um yeah but it was uh one of those songs that yeah i enjoy playing but i'll tell you this much when we did the whole among album in its entirety when we first started doing it, we were doing it in chrono- you know, chronological order. And then by the time it got to that song, we would just look at each other like, oh, <laughs> now we got to play, now, now play this song. You know? So we started to switch it up and playing it earlier, which gave it so much more energy. And, and we enjoyed it a lot more. Hmm. Yeah, because it is almost eight minutes long. It may be one of your longest songs in the, in the whole history. It's of just super, super intense to play. Yeah. Like, it's just really in- intense. 
Well, especially with the emotional attachment to it. Because it's funny because when I came in here, once again, two weeks ago, if you would have asked me, I would have said horror. When I came into this discussion, I was thinking Medusa. But I, once again, came into to music by playing bass. And I was never great. But I used to practice a lot, like we all did when we were 14, 15, 16 years old. And I could kind of, you know, like like I said, I'm sure it was when you guys thought you were playing freaking you know, uh, uh, trying to think of an ACDC song, any ACDC song, when you, when you thought you were playing It's a Long Way to the Top if you want to rock and roll, right? Like, I I kind of would play that, but that end part, it was so exhilarating, bang a dig a dig a dig a dig a dig a dig a and, like, you're barely hanging on for dear life, and sometimes you could almost get through it, but when you were done with it, it your hand kind of hurt because it was really hard to keep up with that. I'm sure you guys kind of went through that from a professional standpoint, but, but the end of that song... Um, and the epicness of it, I got to go with horror of it all as well. Although I was going to say Medusa. So once again, if horror is a 10, Medusa is a 9.998. So it's almost a tie for me, but you can't do that in the classic album clash. So I'm going horror of it all. What do you think, Eddie? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we talked about it already. I mean, I love Medusa and I'm sticking with Medusa. I just love the riff. You know, I think, when I think about this a little bit, because obviously there there's times I've gone with stuff on among over stuff on spreading in this conversation. And, you know, I certainly love both records, but I think, you know, where I come from is probably a bit more, well, not probably is more traditional metal leaning, you know, and that's why I'm probably going with songs like armed and dangerous and Medusa over the counterparts on Among because I love that style of just, you know, more riff-based, groove-based, classic-sounding stuff versus some of the, you know, super, super fast, intricate stuff that I obviously also like and appreciate, but it's just more of my roots. So I think that's probably why, you know, I, I kind of go in, in that direction a little bit. But, um, you know, Medusa... Like I said, I yelled at these guys for years to play that song again live, and they, and they didn't do it until recently. So that's always been a, a personal favorite, and I'm, I, for that reason, I'm going that way. All right, here we have the big climax of the two super fast, uh, heavy songs: it, uh, "Gung Ho" versus "Imitation of Life." Charlie, you're the guy who's to play the drums on both these tunes. What do you think uh, uh, between these two? I go gung ho. It was one of those achievements that it's like, man, because we always were, we always would say this one has to be over the top, you know. Even when we play it live, we would play it ten times faster than the album version. But there was something cool about that song. This is another one that was pre-Joey. Mm-hmm. We had this song oh, wow. before Joey. So I'm gonna go gung ho with this, but I do love Imitation of Life. And there's a riff that Scott had for this song that was originally for another song, and we used it for Imitation of Life, and it was always one of the heaviest parts uh, for me on the record. All right. Gung Ho, to me, is top five anthrax of all time. I just love the title, Gung Ho. Once again, I know way too much about pop culture. I remember some kind of war movie or something that I saw when I was just a kid called Gung Ho. I knew exactly what it meant. Uh, kind of in a war standpoint. That song is so fast. Once again, a great Wang solo from Scott Ian. <laughs> once again. And I just love fight, 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 fighting the war. It's so good. Uh, Imitation of Life, very cool, great tune. 
But uh, I love Gung Ho so much that I'm probably the only person on the planet that can say this. When I did Dancing with the Stars and I was uh, in my trailer getting ready to go out and do my live performance on a Monday night or whatever it was, uh, I listened to Gung Ho to get me super pumped up before I did my uh, Viennese waltz or my Paso It would have been cooler if he came out and danced to Gung Ho. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but just so you know, Gung Ho was an inspiration. And I got through seven weeks of Dancing with the Stars thanks to Gung Ho and Anthrax. And also, too, uh, the end of this song, it's very much like Power Slave. It's a Maiden style where it just has this big, long crash and burn ending. And then it just continues with this weird little army little thing and then just a bunch of drunks screaming and yelling uh you gotta tell me the story behind that what was the uh, the mindset between the end for the end of gung-ho uh, we used to do that that intro live you mean like that yeah in my ignorance i don't even know the name of that piece of music i should i should know that then it just goes okay. to die, 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 bah, 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 bah. It sounds like there's a bunch of people in the studio and people are screaming and there's like chickens squawking. Well, like, when on, on the Spreading the Disease tour, we would do this at the end of the show. We would play that riff. Dan, dan, dan. Oh, yeah, not. But yeah. And then uh, Scott would have this. We had this sign backstage and it was like uh, kind of like the Ramones, Gaba Gaba, you know, yeah. and it was it was this huge sign that said not so the word not kind of went with the riff not not and then not. that's how we would that's how we would end the show and then it, we just recorded it that way <laughs> is, Live yeah we had not not was actually one of our one second songs going back to the crab society which was a predecessor to sod and not was just one of literally that was the song. It would just go not with just one chord behind it. And, uh, so it was just something that kind of made its way into, into the anthrax set at, at some point. What was not the meaning of it? The same as Wayne's world. Like, uh, I really like you not that sort of Yeah. Thing. Yeah. It's that same. Yes. I, where I grew up in Queens, you know, long before I even said it as a kid, the older kids were using it in that context in the seventies, like where I grew up. So it was a part of my vernacular, you know, so especially once the band got going and we're traveling around places and we were all using not in that context long before Wayne's world was a, was a thing. The classic Warren Rumpel story. He came up and asked you in Winnipeg if, uh, not stood for ton backwards. Cause you yeah. guys were so heavy. And you said, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life and walked away from him. <laughs> <laughs> Eddie, what do you think, Gung Ho or Imitation of Life? Still trying to figure out how Scott became a Yankees fan growing up in Queens, but we'll move on from <laughs> because that. My, because my first baseball game was Yankee Stadium. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I uh, Gung Ho because it just puts me back being a kid at those shows, seeing them. It was always the set closer. It was even faster when they played it live. It was like the the climax of the whole friggin' show. And it was, people knew it was coming and they knew that's how it was going to end. And whatever anybody had left in that room in terms of like the mosh circle or the stage diving or just head banging, fist banging, whatever the hell you were doing, that was, that was it. That was the signal to just, you know, leave it all out there. Let go. Here, here we go. So it was just such a... Um, 
you know, even though it's obviously, unless you're a hardcore anthrax fan or grew up at that time, you're, it's not a, a well-known song. Uh, it, at the time, it was just like the, the ultimate sort of thing. And I, I had never heard anything. I don't think at that point, anything that I was listening to as fast as that. Uh, I, I didn't even know for, it took me a while to even like process it until I would see them live a lot and then see what it did to the audience when they played it and then get an appreciation for it. But it was without a doubt for me, one of the most extreme things I had heard, but I, I just, just because of what it was and what it meant to the crowd when they played it live, it's to me, it's, it's gone. Well. Scott, Charlie mentioned uh, about imitation of life earlier the intro to that song, that whole da na 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 na, that was the first, pretty much that was the first riff that would have been used for a second SOD album. At the time, we had a uh, we had written a song called um, Oh my God, uh, aren't you aren't you hungry? And um, that was the that was the intro to that song. And of course, people know the history. Aren't you hungry? Ended up being a song on the first MOD record because we never made a second SOD record back at that time. But we always loved that riff so much, that whole intro. So we figured, well, let's use that riff as the intro and then we'll just write another song that comes after that riff. And that was the rest of Imitation of Life, which for me, I love it. It's super thrashy and it's blazing fast and it's really fun to play. But for me, it always, the rest of that song never really, to me, lives up to what the rest of the original version, which became Aren't You Hungry. For me, I always hear that after that intro in my brain. So that's one of the, one of the many reasons why I would go gung-ho as well. I just felt like, you know, for me, gung-ho was, it was a real statement. I, I feel like that song, you know, we just... Uh, it was just balls out to use a John Bush expression. <laughs> we just, you know, we just, we just really went for it. And, uh, and uh, I just felt like it really just was a statement. It was the finale. It was, there was, there was nothing left when we finished playing that song. And, uh, and it's a song I really want to bring back because it's one of those ones that's such a great part of our history that we really haven't revisited yet. And, and I, I think it's something that we definitely need to, um, that we need to bring back because uh, like I think Eddie was saying, a lot of people maybe aren't so familiar with that song and I think it'll blow people's minds. Well, and people that are, oh, yeah, I, I go gung ho as well. It's like when Metallica busts out whiplash or, or Megadeth just started doing the conjuring again. If you guys do gung ho, people that don't know it will learn it. And people like me that have been waiting to hear it will go, Absolutely crazy, as Ozzy would say. Um, yeah, it's, it's great. I, I, I mean, I started playing that song again just for myself, messing around as like a warm-up because it's the fastest thing we do. So when I would be warming up before shows, you know, after about 15 minutes when I my hands would be getting up to speed, the true test for me would be like, can I play gung-ho? <laughs> because knowing that that's faster than anything we're going to be playing tonight so, you know, if I could play gung-ho, I know I'm in good shape. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, what a, what a piece of history it's been here. It's been almost two hours, which is insane. But final thoughts on, on Spread of the Disease uh, and Among the Living. Let's start with you, Eddie. You know, both both great records still to this day, both go-to anthrax records for me. When I, when I look at 
that initial period of the band, uh, those are without a doubt my two go-to records from that era and from the Joey era. I, obviously, I like stuff that came after it, and I like a few things that were there before it. But to me, that's like, I mean, that's the direct hit. That's the iconic stuff. That's the stuff that was game-changing. That was the stuff that helped the world get introduced to the whole speed thrash metal whatever the hell you want to call it including myself it was what laid the foundation for what would later why people would consider anthrax to be among the big four so to me i mean they're they're, they're two unbelievably important records not just to anthrax but in metal in general and met in, in the history of metal overall and if you are lucky enough to have had the personal connection that i had to them not just as a fan but also you know literally growing up with these guys and then obviously working in you know working for the company that put them out and for me on the personal level it just brings me back to being that kid in lemores brings me back to being in johnny z's smoky garage brings me back to holding scott's video camera that was the size of a cinder block and shooting the whole set of <laughs> at Don, at Download or Donington at that time, the first time I ever went to England was with them. You know, them bombing my hotel room the first time I went to England. All these stories, buying the headdress. So <laughs> for me, it connects on a million levels: personal, fan level, everything about it. I mean, they're just they're just two incredibly important records. For me, uh, coming from a stand, fan standpoint, you know, uh, among. Persistence and and Sound of White Noise are my three favorite Anthrax records, but I forgot how much I like Spreading. But more importantly, from from a guy who who bought Fistful of Metal all the way up to King's record among uh, was it among all Kings? No, Kings for all Kings for all Kings. That's what it was. To be able to to discuss these records with you guys with Charlie and Scott uh, is is a great honor, and to have you guys as my friends is very cool. Um, by the way, and by the way, let me just say something real quick because, and I'm not just saying this because these guys are on the phone. I actually said this on my radio show a week or two ago because somebody brought up Anthrax. What, what's the most, one of the most incredible things to me about Anthrax right now is the fact that anybody else that we'd be doing this about and talking about their second or third, fourth record, mid late 80s, right. we would all internally be saying, they're never going to top that. I mean, that was their peak. That was the thing. Right. I, I firmly feel and believe that maybe the be- some of the best stuff top to bottom Anthrax has done since these two records we just spent two hours talking about is actually their m- two most recent records. Like, I actually think worship music is as good as anything on these other two records. So the fact that there's not a lot of bands you can talk about flash forward 33 years and say you know i could have almost done this thing with you talking worship music versus spreading versus, or among right because it's unheard of that a band can be around that long and do go through all the stuff they've gone through and actually in the current day in my opinion at least make music that stands up to that agreed charlie Thanks, final, thank you final thank you for that. final thoughts charlie i i love our i i always consider I mean, we are fistful is our first album, but to me, spreading really is our first, you know, album with that, with the lineup that is the classic lineup, you know, and um, those two records among and and spreading, uh, among gave us a career, 
if it wasn't for spreading, there'd be no among. So the, the two of them, I hold very high in, in high regard in, in our career. So I, I love both of those records. There was moments, there was things that were going on. There was this camaraderie. We were, like Scott said earlier, we were young, man. We were just early 20s, really getting to know each other. And then, boom, we're just, boom, there you go. Bye. You guys are together forever now. Go on tour <laughs> and, and and you know, get along. And, you know, all of a sudden you see this guy has this issue, this guy has that issue, but you all just kind of make it all work because you love what you're doing. Believe me, there were some trying times out there, but... If it wasn't for those trying times, you know, who knows if we would have made a worship music or for our kings, you know? Mm -hmm. Agreed. And, and just to back up with Eddie said, I think Earth on Hell and Breathing Lightning are top 10 for me as well. So I agree with what Eddie said. But Scott, as, home, my God, Safe Home should have been. So there's so a lot of great started. tunes. But let's, uh, Scott, you, you got the final word on this, man. Final thoughts on these two great um, records and in, in, in your time? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel the same as Charlie. I, you know, I think as being the guys in the band, we just, we see it in a certain way. And, and for sure, I, you know, I, those, that's, that time period of 85 through 87 is why we're on the phone right now. Mm -hmm. You know, um, we, we were able to leave a deep enough mark on the planet and in, in people's psyches, you know, people fell in love with what we were doing and continue to all these years later. There's right now somewhere on this planet, there's, there's a, a kid, literally a kid probably listening to among the living for the first time yeah. because his older brother turned him onto it or whatever reason, or he, he found it online streaming because it said, if you like this, you should try this. Right. Um, you know, and, and it's an undeniable record. Both of you know, both of them are. You really can't go wrong. I feel like with with, with either one, they just they just absolutely hold up. And uh, um, yeah, we you know we have those records to thank for a career. And to touch on what what Eddie said, it would be really easy. I think maybe easy is not the right word, but for a band like us with our catalog we don't have to make records anymore that we did come to a point in our career where we could have just gone out every two years and played the songs that everybody wants to hear the same 14 to 18 songs that everyone wants to hear. And we could have just done that, but that's really not who we are. And, and when, you know, so when Eddie talks so highly about worship music and, and floral Kings, it feels really good because we did, work so hard on those records and put so much of ourselves and our lives into those records. And, to, you know, to know that people connect with those records the same way they connected with the records from 30 years ago, obviously feels really good as uh, it makes me feel really good as an artist. And the fact that we don't have to just rest on our laurels, as they say, you know, it's always about moving forward. And then wait a minute real quick. So we're not going to do dynasty versus unmasked. <laughs> I thought that's what this was all about. Scott has to listen to those those albums first. He's never heard them before. <laughs> yeah, I have to listen to them. <laughs> well, guys, thank you so much for uh, for uh, giving me a fun uh, Friday afternoon here. And like I said, it really is historical to have the two architects of this band talking about some of their uh, their, their great work. So 
really appreciate it and stay safe and hopefully we'll get a chance to see you guys face to face soon and not have to worry about uh, shaking hands and all the other bullshit. Well, I, I've I've always hated shaking hands, so now that's it. I never have to shake hands ever again. again. That's right. God <laughs> is always social distanced. Exactly. Exactly. This is nothing new for me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, guys. All, All right, right, guys. Cheers. Cheers. All right, All right, bye. bye.